Good morning, Center Church. Good to be here with you this morning. My name is Lindsay, and I'm John's wife, and uh, I'm very excited to be able to share with you this morning. Um, This is an incredible series that we've been in, This Is Us. We're learning the connection between our stories with God's story, and we're looking at specific characters in the Bible and seeing how we can learn and we can grow from them as a result. And I haven't been here for every one of the series so far, every week of this series, but What I have heard has been incredible, and yet I haven't been able to shake this thing, and maybe you're with me in this, that every time we talk about this is us, I wish, like I wish I was holy enough that my brain would automatically go to this series and what we're talking about and Jesus, but it really just goes to Tuesday nights at 9 p.m. on my couch watching the show This Is Us. I don't know if there's anybody in here who watches it too. I know there's a couple of you. Some of you might be like, oh, I, I don't watch it. That's a girl show. But I know there's at least one guy in this room that watches the show with me on Tuesday nights. <laughs> self-identified. So if you're not familiar with it, it's a show that's been on since about 2016, and it follows the lives of of the Pearson family, specifically their three kids, Kate, Kevin, and Randall. And if you jump in right now, it's a little bit complicated because there's approximately, you know, 85 storylines going on at any given time. You know, there's Kate, who's struggling to be a singer, also trying to get pregnant with her husband, who's on antidepressants, and so that might be affecting their ability to have kids. And then there's Kevin, who um, you know, is struggling with the fact that he lost his dad at a young age, and so he's trying to find his identity, and he's a movie star gone wrong, and he's cycling through all these relationships. And then there's Randall, who's seemingly got it all together at work, but it turns out he struggles with crippling anxiety, and, and you know, his wife is awesome, but then she's out of a job, and they're trying to figure out what life looks like now. And, and so it's just, there's something going on at any given moment. It's full of drama. It's full of commercial breaks. I honestly feel like there's more commercials than there is show in the hour that I watch it. But each week, me and millions of people come back for more. And the reason why that's the case, the reason why so many people do that is because you find yourself in some character in the story. With all these storylines going on, because there's so many things happening, at least once an episode, if not once every couple weeks, you're sitting on your couch and you're watching it, and with tears streaming down your face, you're like, I've been there, or I am there, or I know somebody who's in that spot. And so the first episode airs in 2016, like I said, and I remember watching it, and it it bounces back and forth between these grown three children and their lives as kids, because it helps you kind of gain perspective, right? Like if we all knew each other when we were growing up, we might have a better understanding of why we are the way that we are, either for good or, or for bad. And so it opens up with Jack and Rebecca, the parents of these three kids, and they're about to go to the hospital. So Rebecca's pregnant with triplets. She's super pregnant and labor goes a little bit weird and a little bit wrong and even though Kate and Kevin are born and they're okay they lose the third baby and it's it's like 18 minutes into the first episode of this show and you're just already crying and you're so happy that Rebecca's okay but you're mourning the loss of this baby but you're happy that there's two and Jack's freaked out that he's gonna lose his wife but then everything's okay and it's just oh my goodness it's so emotional and so there's this quiet moment after this happens where Jack is walking through the hospital 
Rebecca's recovering, and he comes to the window where you can look in and see all the babies, and he, he looks in to see his babies, and he sees uh, this picture, this scene, so he sees what, who we come to know as Kate and Kevin, and then he sees that third baby on the right as well. And he's looking through the window, and a fireman comes up next to him and, and looks in with him, and he points to that third baby. And he says, somebody left that baby on our doorstep outside the fire station this morning. Whoever left him clearly, clearly didn't want him, didn't want to raise him, and so now he's here and, and somebody needs to adopt him. We don't know Jack super well yet, but you can see the wheels turning inside of his head. And you can see that he wants to, something in him wants to adopt this third baby, wants to bring this baby home. Now, John and I don't have kids yet, so I don't totally know the situation here, but I'm pretty sure that when you go to the hospital to have a baby, you only have to bring home the baby that you had. Okay? Nobody's expecting you to like pick up a couple more and bring them home with you. And in the midst of tragedy, if Jack and Rebecca had taken their two babies home and moved on with their lives, nobody would have said anything. But there's something in them that moves them to adopt this third baby, who we later come to know as Randall, and give him a chance at life that he might have not otherwise had. Now, we all want to live Jack and Rebecca Pearson lives, lives that are marked by love, not by obligation. But the problem with obligation is that obligation is not a problem. To a lot of us, to live bare minimum lives, to society, to live a bare minimum life isn't really wrong. Like if we just skate through life and if we just do what we're asked to do and we don't really ever go above and beyond, it's okay. Like we can check things off our list, but to live a to-do list life is not a full life. And we can look at the show This Is Us or we can look at the stories in the Bible in the series that we're in called This Is Us and we can see within about three seconds that God and Jesus do not call us to live average obligation lives. They call us to live lives of love because they not only affect the here and now, but they affect the future and they affect eternity. So we're in the story of Ruth today. We saw up on the screen before I got up here. And uh, the story of Ruth is in the Old Testament and it takes place during the time of the judges. Now the best way I can describe the time of the judges for Israel is like the terrible twos of an infant, except it's the terrible 400 years for Israel. <laughs> okay, so imagine that, terrible twos times a lot more. And Israel has just wandered away from God in every sense of the word. They are, it's a dark time of Israel. Israel's doing what was right in their own eyes. There's no regard for what God wants for them. And this comes in the form of moving away from God, what God wants them to do. It means marrying outside of their people. It means sinning. It means doing the opposite of what he wants them to do, worshiping other gods. And God isn't thrilled by this. You know, he doesn't love the fact that his children are just obeying him. And so it comes, his, his punishment comes in the form of uh, oppression, it comes in the form of opposition, and it comes in the form of famine. And so in Ruth chapter 1, it says, in the days that the judges ruled, which we now know means it's not a great time for Israel, it says there's famine in the land, which means there's no food, which means people are starting to move from where there's no food to where there is food. And we're introduced to this family, this family of Elimelech. His wife's name's Naomi, and the names of their two sons are Malon and Kilian. And they went to Moab and lived there. So they traveled to Moab because there's food. And that's 
that's a fair thing, right? Like, think that makes sense. You're going where there's where there's food. Uh, we're not even four sentences in when tragedy strikes and Elimelech dies. Okay, it's like straight up Disney movie. Have you ever noticed that Disney movies parents always die within like the first five minutes? It's kind of dark. Kids movies, but it's kind of dark. And so Elimelech dies. Naomi's left with her two sons, and then they marry Moabite women, which we learned is outside of what God wants what God wants them to do. And so they marry Moabite women. And then within a couple years after that, her sons die, Naomi's sons die, and now she's left with no one. Okay, she's, she's totally left with nobody. She's got her two daughters-in-law, but in that time, if you didn't have a man in your family to kind of get you what you needed, you basically had no one. And so Naomi goes from a full family to nothing, and she realizes that she needs to go home. She realizes once that she realizes that there's food back at home, she needs to go back, kind of with her tail in between her legs, because she's she's uh, done what she shouldn't have done, and she needs to go back. And so before she does that, though, she releases her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab. And this is what she says in chapter one, verse eight. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, "Go back, each of you, to your mother's home." May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands, it's a little morbid, and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. I imagine this moment to be an emotional one. You know, they're preparing to leave and she can't provide for them, but she has no hope. And so she says, you need to go back. Like, you're young, you can just... Add this to the list of depressing things that have happened in your life. Remarry, start over, do something good for yourself. And both of them say, no, 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 we want to go with you. We want to go with you. But and I don't, I don't want to read into scripture too much, but I wonder if, you know, there's two, two daughters-in-law looking at their mother-in-law and Ruth is so genuine. She's like, no, I really want to go with you. And then Orpah, the other daughter-in-law, is like, no, I really want to go with you. Like, it would be super fun to hang out with my mother-in-law for the rest of my life. But then as soon as Ruth, put, as soon as she pushes it and says, no, she's out. She's like, okay, I'm gone. I'm not, I'm not going with you. I have no obligation to you. I am leaving and I am going back to my family and starting over. But Ruth, there's something in her that moves her to go with Naomi. She says, I love you and I'm going to go and I'm going to sacrifice an easy life in Moab to be with you because I love you. Love pushed her to go with her, Naomi, to Moab. And so we see them go on this journey to Moab. So there's going to be a map up here that's going to show us. It's about 30 miles to go. And uh, that's not super far. It's not, it's not too far, but there's no cars. There's no Uber. There's no streetlights. There's no you know, McDonald's to stop at on the way. So these women take seven to 10 days to get to Bethlehem. And they roll in, and it's been about 10 years since Naomi's been there. A lot has happened. People start to see her, and they say, is that Naomi? You know, it's like a 10-year high school reunion that Naomi never wanted to happen. And she is not in a good place walking back to her home. And she says this in chapter 1, verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi is not 
not in a good place. Okay, she is sad. The Lord has brought, this is a pretty bold statement. I was full and the Lord has made me empty. He has afflicted me. She is in a broken state, but we get to see how love is going to redeem her in an incredible way. And so let's read on chapter two, verses one to three. So Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered the field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So once they arrive in Bethlehem and they settle in, they realize, oh, okay, like we need some food. I remember when John and I moved into our first apartment, I had everything planned out so well that we got there on Saturday morning, moved all of our stuff in, we bought a couch, we put together a headboard, we painted three walls, I hung things on the walls, I hung up our clothes, it's like, I did every, we did everything in one day, I was so determined. But then it's 7.30 at night and we sit down and we realize we have no food because we've just moved into our first apartment together. We don't have any food. We had totally, I totally forgotten that we needed to eat. So we had to go and, and buy all of our food. And this is exactly what's happening with Ruth and Naomi. They settle in this new land and they realize, oh, we cleaned out the fridge before we left Moab and now we need to go. But there's no mire for them to go to, of course. So Ruth says, hey, tomorrow I'm going to go out in the fields and I'm going to, what she says, glean behind the harvesters. Now, what this would have meant is, by law, she could go out as a poor woman and pick up grain that was left behind. Farmers, if their workers were working and they dropped a stalk of grain or they dropped something, they had to leave it so poor people could come behind. It wasn't consistent food, it wasn't necessarily safe or clean, but it was a way that they could ensure that at least poor people could eat a little something at any given time. And this is an interesting thing about this, is that Ruth doesn't have to do this. You know, Ruth could have said to Naomi, okay, I made this journey with you. You know, I, I walked with you. I said yes when Orpah said no. I'm here. But now this is your land. Like, this is your thing. Can you pull some strings and get us some food. I'm not gonna go out and put myself in this vulnerable position so that you can eat. But once again, the closer that Ruth draws to Naomi, the more her love for her propels her to go out. The closer we draw to Jesus, the more love that we have for Jesus, the more we're compelled to do the same thing, to go out and to serve him in a unique way. And so that's exactly what Ruth does. She goes out the next day, she's somewhere out in the field, and she ends up in the field of a man named Boaz. And while she's there, Boaz comes out and greets his workers, and he notices Ruth. Okay, she probably looks a little bit different, or she's unfamiliar. And so he goes to his overseer, or like the manager, the boss, of the field, and he's like, who is this? Who's this woman who's out doing this? And uh, the manager has also noticed Ruth's hard work, has noticed that she's been out there for a while. And he says, this is a girl named Ruth, she's with Naomi, she's a Moabite woman, and she's gleaning. And here we get to see Boaz's first act of love. Because see, based on that law that we just talked about, Boaz could have said, cool and then moved on with his day. Nobody was requiring him to do anything. If he had just said, oh, that's awesome, good for her, I'm glad she can take some of our scraps, it would have been totally fine. But Boaz had something in him. He had a love, and it 
compelled him to say to Ruth, instead of, it's all good, do what you need to do, he says, stay here with the women who work for me, take the first choice, drink from my jars, the men that I have here will protect you, they won't harm you, which would have been a huge deal and a huge stress off of Ruth's back. Boaz acted out of love, even though he saw no benefit from what Ruth was doing. There was nothing that Boaz could gain by being nice to Ruth. She doesn't have anything to give him. Nobody thinks he's better if if he does anything, but he does it because he has love in his heart. When I was doing research for this uh, sermon, I, I heard, read this. It says, love is shown when we extend ourselves to others who, as far as we can see, have nothing to give us in return. When was the last time that we did something not out of obligation, but out of love, even though there was nothing that we were going to gain back from it? When was the last time we served somebody in that way? So Ruth works all day, she drinks out of his water, she takes food, and she's super excited to go home to Naomi because she's like, I just slayed this first day of work thing and I cannot wait to go home and tell Naomi. And I imagine she comes home with a ton of food. She probably can't even carry it. And she comes in and she's talking. She's like me, she's talking a mile a minute, telling her all about the day, maybe the friends she met, the food, how she's gonna go back. And she happens to mention the name Boaz. She just happens to throw that in there. I met this guy, Boaz, super cool. Gave me some water, he's awesome. And Naomi, in my, in my, uh, scripture, I have this passage, verse 220, I have it circled, and then I have turning point written. And this is why, because Naomi all of a sudden says, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. I imagine Naomi's heart started to beat a little bit, and her eyes started to get bright as she realized what was happening. See, this is really significant for Naomi because she realizes what God is doing, and she maybe realizes in this moment, maybe God has not left me. Maybe he's still working, even in the brokenness and the hurt of my situation. She says, that man is one of our guardian redeemers. Your your Bible might say kinsman redeemer or something along those lines. Um, A kinsman redeemer was a man that was legally responsible to help a family in their time of need. So let me make sure I get this right. Something that he could be responsible to do would be carry on a family name, buy a family out of slavery, buy back family land, or marry a childless widow. Already, it's obvious that love has moved the story further than obligation ever could have. You see it, right? That Ruth could have stayed back in Moab. Boaz could have stayed back with the manager and not done anything beyond that. But their small acts of love have moved them. Our small acts of love can move us and the story of God further than we ever thought possible. So this is a good thing. This is an exciting thing for Naomi, but she keeps it kind of close to her heart for a moment. And then we're into chapter three. And some sometime afterwards, Naomi comes up to Ruth and she says, Ruth, you need a husband. Like you need somebody who's gonna take care of you. I told you to do that in Moab and you said no, but now we're established here and you need to do this. This is something you need to do. And so she says, I have this incredible plan. It's foolproof, really. It's really great. And it's in Ruth 3, um, verses 1 to 4, and it's going to be up 
and bullet points on the screen so you can see it. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose woman you have worked, is a relative of ours, which we already know. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor, meaning he will be taking care of the wheat that's been brought in. He's going to be doing this as the person who owned the field. It was normal that he would have been doing this by himself, so he'll be alone. So this is what you need to do. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Is anybody uncomfortable yet? And then she says this, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. What? That is so, so strange. Ruth is in, a, and this is a really strange plan, and Ruth is in a really vulnerable place here, okay, because she could have said no. In my brain, if there's any moment where Ruth could back out, even though I feel like there's a lot of moments up to this point, this would be the biggest one. Like, Naomi, thanks, it's been great, but I gotta go. I'm not doing this, especially since, as a planner, this is what really freaks me out, she doesn't even tell her the end of the story. She doesn't even say, then this is what's going to happen. Jesus says, Boaz will tell you what to do. I mean, that could mean a million things. Ruth could have said, can you just give me a hint? Like, could you give me any inkling? Like, am I going to come home tonight? Am I going to die tonight? What, what do you, what's the plan here? But Ruth doesn't say any of that. You know what she says? She says, I will do whatever you say. It's in verse 5. It says exactly that. I will do whatever you say. See, Ruth trusts Naomi. She loves her and she trusts her and her love and trust for Naomi transcend her desire to be safe, to be comfortable, or to know what happens next. See, when we draw close to Jesus and when we love Jesus, trust overflows out of that and we're more comfortable to say yes even though we don't know the ending. And Ruth is right at that place with Naomi. She's comfortable enough and trusts her enough and knows Naomi would always act in her best interest, just like Jesus will always act in our best interest so that things, good things will happen and that the kingdom will grow. So we've heard the weird plan, and now we get to see the weird plan in action further on in chapter 3. So everything goes according to plan. Like up there, Ruth does exactly as he, she says. She goes to the threshing floor. She waits for Boaz to finish eating and drinking. She notices where he lies down to sleep. She approaches him. She uncovers his feet, and she lies down. And then we wait. She waits. And eventually, Boaz wakes up, and he feels somebody at his feet. And he, he gets a little bit startled. You know, when I go to sleep sometimes and I have socks on and I take my socks off like under the covers, if I feel that sock later in the night, I freak out. And I think there's like a snake in my bed or something like that, okay? Has anybody, if I'm feeling like that about a sock, can you imagine how Boaz is feeling about a human being at his feet? And it's lightly pitch black. There's no city light coming in to kind of cast. Like John and I are in an apartment and we shut the lights off and it's basically like the lights are still on because there's a light coming through our window. This is pitch black and there's a person at his feet and he says, who are you? You know, who is this person? And Ruth responds boldly, and she says, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are the guardian redeemer of our family, or you are a guardian redeemer of our family. 
Well, it's honestly anybody's guess how Boaz is going to respond here, given that this is a unique situation. And yet, is it really a shocker that he responds the way that he does? Because we've seen Boaz up to this point a couple different times respond in love when he could have responded in obligation. And so we start to realize, just like we start to see Ruth's life, it's marked by love, not by obligation, that he's likely to go beyond, to go that extra step. When we start to act like that, when that becomes a, a centerpiece or a hallmark of our life, people notice. And so Ruth might have not even been as nervous as we think because she knew. And when people begin to know that, it'd be, it's amazing the opportunities that we get to show that love. And so he responds almost identically to how Ruth responds to Naomi. What did Ruth say to Naomi? She said, I will do whatever you say. And then Boaz responds to Ruth, I will do all that you ask. It's so incredible because we get to see how Ruth's obedience to Naomi directly affects Boaz's response to Ruth. Because Ruth said yes to Naomi, Boaz says yes to Ruth. Are you seeing it here? When we say yes to God, it's incredible the opportunities that we allow other people around us to show love to other people too. It's so, it's a chain reaction and it's so incredible. But it would be cool if this was the end. This would be cool if this was the end of the story, but it's not. Um, it'd be great if, if that was it and they got married and they lived happily ever after, but there's a little bit more to the story. God wants to do more in the story. So he says, Boaz says, I would love to be able to do this for you, but there's actually somebody that's more closely related to you than me. And so legally, I can't just say yes because I need to go to this person first. So we'll do that in the morning, we'll get it all taken care of, and um, we'll move on and, and figure out what the conclusion needs to be. I would think that when Ruth starts saying, or when Boaz starts saying to Ruth, there's somebody that's more closely related, Ruth might be thinking, I have to do this all over again. I have to go to this random man's winnowing floor and wait for him to fall asleep and lay at his feet again and go through this whole process again. And she's probably going through that. But Boaz says, no, don't worry. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. He takes time out of his own life, takes time out of his own day to do this for Ruth. Again, another act of love that is so markably different than somebody who's just living the bare minimum. And so Naomi uh, waits for Ruth to come home. Ruth comes home the next day. She's got uh, bushels of, of barley. The scripture says it's like 10 to 15 pounds that Boaz blesses her with in the morning. And she comes home and Naomi is encouraged. And she says, this will be settled within the day, I'm sure of it. And so we head into chapter four, the last chapter of this story. And in the morning, Boaz goes into the town and he finds this other guardian redeemer. He says, come and sit down. Then he goes and gets the elders. It's like this whole, whole meeting in the middle of the town that's happening. And uh, he explains the situation. He says to this other man whose name we don't know, he says, I thought you might like to know that there's a piece of land that needs to be redeemed. It's from the clan of Elimelech. You are the first person in line to take it. And so legally, I needed to let you know about it. Are you interested? Are you interested in redeeming this land? And the man probably thinks about it for a second. And uh, he says, I will redeem it. That's at the end of verse four. Like, sure, I'm looking to expand my my portfolio and there'd be some good land in there. I can take it. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for bringing it up. And then he starts to, Boaz is almost like moving down the contract of this land. Okay, so he says, here's the land. Now here's the fine print. 
And that's in verse five. He says, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. All of a sudden, man's not super into redeeming this property anymore when he realizes that Ruth comes along with it. And his obligation suddenly goes out the window. He's like, ah, I don't really want to sacrifice what it would mean to take a Moabite woman into my home. I don't really want to go about that. I don't really want to deal with the mess of that. So I'm good. I'm out. And then Boaz, as he said to Ruth, decides that he's going to take it over and he's going to redeem it. Now, in order to redeem the property, in order to make it legally his and to make Ruth legally his wife, he needed to do something in verse seven, says he needed to take off his sandal and give it to the man. And that's the legal transaction. You know, John and I have lived in five different places since we've been married. Uh, we lived with a family, and then we lived in an apartment, and then a condo, and then we had a home for a little bit, and now we're in an apartment again. And all of you have likely done the apartment or bought a home thing. You know it takes like 800 signatures. It takes 249 forms of ID. You have to like sign your name in blood a couple different places. I mean, it's just this whole long process. And all he has to do is take off his sandal and give it to this man. And suddenly everything's good. I don't agree with a lot of things, the way women are treated, especially, you know, in, in these cultures. But I do think that if all we had to do was trade sandals, our lives would be a lot, a lot easier. I will say that. And so he trades the sandal and and everything happens and Ruth becomes his wife. And they get married and they get pregnant and Ruth has a child and they name him Obed. And the cool thing about it is in verse 14 of chapter four, we see a story come full circle that just started three chapters earlier. The woman of the town say to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout all of Israel. The Lord has not left you. If you remember in verse uh, chapter one, in verse 121, Naomi makes that bold statement. Remember, she says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. And here we see that Naomi is made full again. See, each step of love by Ruth and Boaz and Naomi contribute to a fullness of Naomi's life that couldn't have happened by people who were just getting by, people who were living the bare minimum life, who were living purely out of obligation instead of out of love. So all throughout this story, we see moments where a decision had to be made. We're doing the absolute minimum, would have been okay, but it wasn't enough for those people. No one would have questioned Ruth or Boaz or Naomi if they chose to do what was only expected of them and nothing more. But it was their deep love that propelled them out of obligation and out of their comfort zones so that they could be brave and bold and generous and those who were empty could be made full again. And the theme that transcends all of it, the theme that's weaved in throughout this is proximity to one another. They are close to one another. Ruth drew close to Naomi, and Naomi drew close to Ruth. Boaz drew close to Ruth, and vice versa. 
And it's their love for one another and their closeness to one another that brought about these changes and brought about this redemption. And here's the truth for us is that our love and proximity for Jesus is best shown in our love and proximity for those around us. When we live lives of obligation, we are frustrated, we are empty, we are angry. Life never works, we're always hitting walls, we're always hitting dead ends, people are always letting us down. But when we live lives of love, when we're giving more than we're receiving, we live lives that are full. We live lives that are free. Lives that are driven by the Holy Spirit and not driven by our own wants and our own needs and our own desires to be liked or our own desires to be successful by the world's standards. We live lives that are driven by what God wants and by putting the kingdom here on this earth. So there's more to the story in, um, with, with Jack and Rebecca Pearson, the people in This Is Us that I talked about earlier. You know, they go on to raise Randall, this, this boy. They make that decision in the here and now, and it affects Randall right away because he's allowed to come into their family and to be a part of their family. He's given a chance at life that he would not have otherwise had. Randall grows up a couple years, you know, 30 years later, marries a woman named Beth, and they have a good life, and they have two daughters, and they have a good job, or they have good jobs and all these things. It's great. And nothing is, is wrong. They're living the life that, that has been given to them, that they've chosen for themselves. But then one day they have the opportunity to foster a child named Deja, who comes from a terrible home, who has a terrible upbringing, who doesn't have the life that she needs to have. And even though uh, Beth and Randall could have said, yeah, we've got enough going on. We don't need something else in our life right now. They're moved by love to adopt this young girl, Deja. And she gets a chance at life that she wouldn't have otherwise had. You know, when Jack and Rebecca made that decision 30 years earlier to bring Randall home, they didn't realize that decision that they would make would then affect the life of a girl 30 years later. And who knows where that could go. Now, it's a fake story, of course, but there's more to the story of Ruth as well, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. I want you to uh, read with me in Ruth 4, 16 and 17. Then Naomi took the child in her arms. So this is Obed, the baby that um, Ruth and Boaz have just had. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. A couple thousand years later, in Matthew chapter 1, in the beginning of the New Testament, there's that same little section talking about Obed being the father of Jesse, who's the father of David, but it doesn't end there like it does in Ruth. See, it keeps going a couple verses down, and I won't read you the whole thing, but it ends with Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. But do you see the significance there? Do you see that the love of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi directly connects to the story of Jesus? If Ruth had stayed back in Moab, if if Boaz had stayed instead of saying hi to Naomi, or instead of extending love and grace and goodness to Ruth. Do you see what could have happened? We could have missed Jesus, but their obedience, their willingness not to live a safe and normal and, and obligatory life brought about 
not only something that affected them, not only something that affected the New Testament and the church, but affects us here today. We have a direct connection to this story that we're talking about today because it brought us Jesus and the hope of eternal life and the gospel and the salvation that is available to every single one of us if we choose to receive it. And so I wanna ask you this question today, where do you act in obligation that you could act in love? in your school, in your work, in your family, in your friendships? Where is one spot where when you look at that situation, just like Jack looked through the window at those babies, just like Boaz looked at Ruth, just like Ruth looked at Naomi, that something stirs in you that says, right now I'm doing the bare minimum, but God wants me to do more. Right now I'm doing what I'm expected to do, but God's asking me to step it up, even if it's just in a small way. Because the truth is, is that that could make all the difference, both in the here and now, but in the future, and then even into eternity. What is one small step of love this week that you can take towards someone else where right now you act in obligation? We're gonna sing a song called Came to My Rescue right now. And uh, the bridge says, in my life be lifted high, in our world be lifted high, in my love be lifted high. This week, where is that place where God's love needs to be lifted high in your life more than it is right now? Because I guarantee not only will it affect you in this moment, but it could affect eternity as well. So I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna sing. If you wanna sing, that's cool. If you wanna sit and think, that's cool too. Nobody's gonna judge you for whatever you decide, but let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you that even though it was written thousands of years ago, and at first glance it's disconnected, that it is living and it is active and it connects directly to us in 2019 here today. God, thank you for how good you are. Thank you for the goodness you showed to the people in this story and the goodness you show to us. God, I pray this week that as we go into our homes, into our workplaces, into our schools, that you would give us a prompting, that the Holy Spirit would prompt us directly to go out and to show love to people and that we would trust you and that we would have faith in you and that we would know that you are a good God enough that we would go and do it, that we wouldn't hesitate and that you'd give us the confidence and the boldness that we need. Thank you, God, for the opportunity we have to serve you and to live for you. We'll give you all the glory for all that you're going to do. We ask all of this in your name.